Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the Defining Conservatism podcast. Today we're talking with Todd Zwicky about a new First Principles essay he's written for the Heritage Foundation entitled Restoring the Rule of Law and Finance. This is a subject that Todd Zwicky is a longtime expert in, uh, well-noted contributions and research in the, in the realm of consumer law uh, and finance. He's the former executive director of the GMU Law and Economics Center. He's the George Mason University Foundation Professor of Law at the George Mason University Antonin Scalia School of Law. He has published widely in law reviews, journals, and also many you know, popular publications as well. So Todd, we are delighted to have you join us and to get your expertise on this important subject. Thank you, Richard. It's great to be with you. Uh, Todd, thinking about uh, the, uh, the, this this paper, Restoring the Rule of Law in Finance. There are a lot of hot button issues uh, around this subject, things in the media and the press that I want to discuss. But I want to just think about this concept for a minute, because people in our circles talk about the rule of law a lot. We we, uh, assume uh, that we are defenders of the rule of law, and we are. But what what does that mean, Uh, the rule of law? And and also, why is it so significant here in finance? Yeah, thanks. I think that's the place to start with, which is with that question, which is a lot of people quibble over, over, over sort of philosophical definitions of the rule of law, which I think misses the point, right? The point of the rule of law is kind of the, the proof is in the pudding, which is first, you know, it does, the idea is basically captured in the traditional idea of the rule of law versus the rule of men, uh, which is to say that the rule of law means that uh, the governors are constrained by the law just as they constrain others. But beyond that, the way we could think about the rule of law coming out of Hayek and particularly Oakeshott um, is the idea is, is that the rule of law allows us to predict how, predict how other people are going to behave, not just the government, but actually other individuals who we contract with and the like. And so even the common law rules of contract, tort, and the like are all part of the, uh, the fabric of the, uh, of the rule of law. And the rule of law matters for a variety of reasons uh, that are particularly relevant in finance, and I'll talk about finance briefly, which is first, the rule of law is important because it tells you when the government oversteps. Clear rules announced in advance that constrain the government tells people when the government is doing something improper. When the rules are fuzzy, when they're poorly defined, um, that leaves a lot of discretion for the government to be able to to overstep uh, and, uh, uh, and and the like. The second thing is is the rule of law by by sort of uh, um, making the government subject the generally applicable rules announced in advance is a powerful check on cronyism and favoritism, uh, which which finance is completely riddled uh, uh, by um, in its regulatory framework. Final thing I'll say is the rule of law is particularly important for finance. Why? Because in order to make a loan, you need to be able to predict 
what whether the loan is going to be enforceable. What are going to be the terms on which uh, the the contract will be enforced? Will the government try to rewrite the loan? Will people will you be able to actually enforce it when you go to court and the like? And so, making a loan requires you to be able to accurately price risk and. Accurately pricing risk is a function of the legal regime, the predictability of enforcing contracts, the equality by which contracts are enforced and the like. And so without the rule of law, there really is no functioning finance system uh, other than sort of informal agreements um, and connections and the like. Uh, thinking about finance, you know, a lot of people listening to this, Todd, when, when they think finance you know, what, what comes to mind are really big and personal forces that seem beyond their control, maybe even beyond their comprehension. They think of these large banks, uh, JP Morgan, Bank of America, uh, others that, you know, dominate the banking scene. Um, they think of the Federal Reserve, which, you know, they read in the newspapers, has the ability to, you know, set interest rates, whatever that means, which can cause people, which can cause people to lose their jobs, can cause an economic slowdown, and they do this deliberately, and and so and I think there's this sense of well, this is incredibly centralized, it's incredibly powerful. There seem to be really powerful people at the top of it. Uh, what 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 do we mean by thinking about finance, and is that? Scenario, that sort of picture that I'm painting that I think is impressionistically true for many people. Um, uh, well, I, you know, one, accurate, but is it an outcome of the rule of law in American finance or other things that are, that are pulsating through that system? Well, I think to some extent, to a large extent, it is accurate. Uh, and, you know, this is what I document in the paper is the unraveling of the rule of law in finance in the United States has been a project that has occurred over multiple years and multiple decades. Um, and the real fuel of this unraveling of the rule of law are crises, um, uh, you know, beginning in the 19th century, but really in the 20th century, when the government has grown, the creation of the Federal Reserve, um, and as you are saying, this ability of central government actors um, in a powerful federal government to be able to um, interfere in markets, to step into markets. Um, in the 19th century, we would have panics and that sort of thing. But there was basically a market discipline, more or less. Um, and, you know, things would, they were, they were messy and that sort of thing. But you didn't have the kind of problems we have today. Today, beginning with um, the creation of the Fed, the New Deal rules, uh, the creation of the FDIC, multiple, multiple layers of bureaucracy uh, um, and regulatory uh, oversight and that sort of thing, what we've seen is each crisis brings forth a new slate of new regulations, new regulatory agencies, um, all of whom have less and less well-defined powers. Um, and as Jeb Henserling famously said uh, when Dodd-Frank was being debated on the floor of Congress, he said, there are at least three unintended consequences in every page of this legislation, yeah. right? And and that's what we've seen is, is Dodd-Frank's a good example. Two, 2,400 pages of legislation, tens of thousands of pages of regulations, tens of billions of dollars of compliance costs. Um, and does anybody really know what the rules are? I don't think so. Is government really constrained? Well, just ask Silicon Valley Bank uh, and the recent bank bailouts that we had, whether or not we've gotten rid of bailouts, whether or not the government is constrained 
and the like. Um, and so, you know, the, the government expands, 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 become more and more discretionary. And that discretion itself then lays the foundation for the next crisis. You and I, I think, have been you know, talking uh, about this subject for a while, and it, it seems that you know, the policy threats uh, change, evolve, get worse. You, know, you, you keep talking about the rule of law. It seems, though, that Dodd-Frank really codified the idea of the bailout uh, culture. Uh, in American finance. I mean, when that, the recent Silicon Valley example, just to my mind, there really wasn't even much of a question. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, and, and they just immediately did it. And um, yeah, I mean, and it was like, how, you know, no one really seemed to question it other than, you know, uh, a few people. And right, um, right. so here we are. Yeah, the, the fact that I, I, was anybody in America surprised or shocked when Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and these got bailed out? No, of course not, right? And what's absurd about the whole situation is Todd Frank was supposed to do one thing. If you look at you know the announcements of the White House, Todd Frank was supposed to do one thing, get rid of too big to fail, right? No more bailouts. Not a, I've traveled the country for over 10 years now talking about Dodd-Frank. I've t spoken to dozens of groups. I've talked to members of Congress, staffers, thousands of uh, people on college campuses, lawyers and the like. And I have not found a single person in that 10-year period who thought that Dodd-Frank got rid of uh, too big to fail, right? And so if you think about it, it was supposed to do one thing, which is get rid of too big to fail, this discretionary process of bailing out banks, um, and in particular, the moral hazard problems that that creates. Yet not a single person believed that it got uh, rid of too big to fail. Elizabeth Warren, Jeb Henselling, and Tim Geithner all agreed it didn't get rid of too big to fail uh, in bailouts. And most importantly, Wall Street didn't think it got rid of too big to fail in bailouts. And we saw as soon as we hit a bump in the road uh, with these recent banks. The immediate thing that happened was immediately uh, bailouts started again. Uh, what legal authority? Nobody really knows. Did anybody really ask? Not really, <laughs> right? It's just like we just accept that that's what they're going to do. Um, and this shows the really one of the big problems here and why the rule of law is so important, which is we now have the worst of all worlds when it comes to bailouts, which is we have a de jure official legal regime that says we don't bail out banks. Yet we have a de facto political regime where everybody knows we're going to bail out banks. And in particular, Wall Street knows uh, that, they're, that we're going to bail out banks. And so they act uh, accordingly. Um, and this is this is really puts in bright relief what happens when you don't have a, a real rule of law that where the government is pre-committed to doing certain things um, and, you know, the uncertainty that creates in the economy and the difficulty it creates in terms of, um, of you know, managing risk? Uh, I mean, you use the expression, I think, you know, Dodd-Frank just codified bailouts. Right. It, it really just created the, the mechanism by which it would happen, but didn't say it. Um, right. th thinking about, you know, this, is there something about the nature of finance that makes this possible? Um, is it, is it, I mean, it, you know, um, it, just the, it, within, within a democratic society, you know, inevitably the bigness, the centralization, 
of these institutions. Maybe, you know, and maybe that's been facilitated. I think it has been by the layers of regulations over the past century. But here we are. I mean, how do you how could one unwind this situation? Right. So you can you can look at it from both sides of that dynamic, uh, Richard. Right. On one side, what you have are the politicians and regulators who like to complain about bailouts um, and the lack of rule of law, but they actually love it. Right. The greatest thing that ever happened to uh, for Elizabeth Warren and the uh, um, and Democrats was giving a trillion dollars to the biggest banks in America. Right. They could complain about it. They could complain it was a uh, uh, failure of capitalism. But what did it do? It allowed them to get their hooks into those banks and basically turn the banks into arms of the, uh, the regulators, the, the woke activists uh, who they who they work with. Right, um, the creation of the CFPB, um, and this is what we see it throughout most of the world. Um, and if you look at, for example, um, indexes of economic freedom around the world, one of the things that they look at is how independent is the banking system from politics, uh, and to what extent does uh, do, does the government use the banking system as an arm to basically accomplish off balance sheet um, goals? And that's what we're seeing more and more. Here is this sort of diabolical intertwining uh, where the politicians, the regulators, and the activists basically create this new iron, and the big banks create this new iron triangle where they accomplish social goals. The push, for example, for ESG now, right, to use banks as a wedge for ESG, if you remember um, uh, Biden's first nominee for the Office of Control of the Currency, uh, Saleh Almarova. And it finally went down in flames, but basically it's because she said she was going to use the banking system to bankrupt the fossil fuel industry, right? Um, and so, so politicians like it. They like the fact that the rules are murky because then they can push the banks. We could come back and talk about um, Operation Choke Point and cancel culture in a minute. But then on the other side of the equation, you have this argument you're, you're, you're making, right, which is why banking? And the argument they make is that Banks have um, this centrality to the economy uh, that uh, um, that they're intertwined with other aspects of the economy. Now, this is not an invalid concern, right? Which is part of the problem that happened during the Great Depression was that bank failures basically accelerated the constriction of the money supply. Um, and once banks started calling their loans, that created foreclosures uh, uh, and the like. And so it's 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 not a Crazy idea, right? But bailouts are not the uh, ballots are not the answer, right? We need to think more about how we do that. We need to be very careful about doing that. So, as I think Peter Wallison has nicely explained, whatever happened during the 2008 financial crisis, it was not a contagion effect uh, from from Lehman Brothers. It was a creature of government regulation itself. That made banks more fragile, and if you'll recall, uh, several years ago, Richard, I wrote an essay for Law and Liberty, uh, reviewing Nicholas Taleb's book, um, Anti-Fragile, and making the uh, financial system anti-fragile, um, where we look at this, where regulation itself creates the fragility of the banking system, uh, that then creates the the crises that then become larger and then give rise to government intervention. 
it seems to me as I was reading your paper, uh, Todd, you know, there, there's this, and I think it's re related here. Uh, you know, this you hear this term a lot: financialization of the economy uh, that that people are raising. And you know this idea that the financial sector has too much significance and too much power, too much power in our economy. My, my, my first response to that, in thinking about it, one, just assuming that we know, you know geometrically what each sector of the economy's power and share should be. But <laughs> right. secondly, to the extent this could be a problem, uh, this is inevitably bound up with with the government uh, shaping this industry through its own regulations and you know preventing uh, preventing sort of a competition itself. I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, you know, um, is Jamie Dimon famously said when Dodd Frank was passed um, that Dodd Frank had widened the moat, uh, protecting the big banks from competition from others. Why? First, by entrenching the too-big-to-fail subsidy, right, which allows big banks to um, access capital markets uh, uh, easier than, than small banks and creates a subsidy because of this de facto uh, protection uh, that they have that now apparently also extends to mid-sized banks, at least if they're politically uh, uh, connected. But the second thing is, is just the sheer cost of regulation um, and a lot of forms of regulation, including financial regulation do not scale with size. And so big banks do not necessarily oppose regulation. Big banks like regulation that is expensive, complicated, um, and creates barriers to entry and barriers to competition uh, from, from smaller banks by imposing on them uh, onerous paperwork burdens, uh, you know, Hiring another 150 compliance officers at J.P. Morgan is a rounding error. You know, hiring one compliance officer uh, at a local community bank, you know, could be the difference between a profit and loss almost. Uh, um, yes. And so, and so, so to, to your point, finance is unusually susceptible to regulatory arbitrage. Um, and I think that's a lot of what we see in this, this growth of financialization, which is I think it's a legitimate concern, you know, leaving aside your point about what is the optimal amount. Uh, you know, I think it's a concern that as complicated as the regulatory structure is on the financial system today, that there is a lot of energy and a lot of talent that just goes into pure regulatory arbitrage that essentially creates no value um, in the economy, but just looks for, you know, mispriced assets and the likes that are, that are driven by, by regulation um, and the unpredictability of dealing with regulation. Um, and this, you know, this question too, it sort of creates this opening. There's no distinction between public and private. Therefore, the bank should just be public utilities. In effect, I mean, that's that that, that kind of seems the the, the logic that uh, that we're moving towards here. Yeah. Um, you talk a lot about supervised. So this is inherently also an administrative state problem. You mentioned the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau created my limited knowledge, you know, really to be insulated from accountability, the entire agency and, you know, it's budget being paid for by the federal reserve. Um, <laughs> At least for super, now. <laughs> so we've got, so we've got supervisory powers. You talk about supervisory powers in the paper related to the administrative state, able to do things to the two companies outside even of regular uh, administrative state legal channels. Yeah, and that's that's why I think um, and why I appreciate you inviting me to to write this essay, Richard. Is one of the things I hope people who are not 
particularly interested in finance, but are interested in the rule of law, <clears throat> interested in the regulatory state, will see here is um, that and, and finance today in the United States is the apotheosis of the regulatory state, right? Uh, which is, this is where progressives are pushing the regulatory state, right, towards um, uh, more and more independence, less and less accountability, and more and more opaque systems of regulation and, and massive uh, discretion uh, by regulators. And so this is why I talk a lot in the paper, and it may not, people who aren't in this world may not appreciate it, but I do talk a lot about supervision. Why? Supervision is this very informal, very opaque process um, often referred, you know, John Allison has referred to it as regulation by raised eyebrow, right? Mm -hmm. um, there are no rules. Um, it's kind of made up as they go along. It's not, you can't object to supervision like you can. You can't find, it's, there's no not, notice and comment rulemaking, right? There, you can't, you can't go to court for supervision and object to something. Basically, when the supervisor tells you to do something, there's really no way of challenging it. There's really no way of saying that is uh, that is illegal. And we see this at the CFPB sort of on steroids right now as the CFPB director, Rohit Chopra, for example, announced a brand new initiative that unfair deceptive acts and practices from now on will cover anything that is considered discrimination, right? A completely novel interpretation of this term and he announced this by changing one paragraph in the, you know, several hundred page examination manual. A lawsuit's been filed in Texas to say that has the effect of a rule, right, that we should be allowed to challenge that, you know, that the way in which this de facto is binding on banks means that it should be thought of as having some due process and procedural protections. Um, but what they've done over time is through this entanglement, through this loose use of supervision, through this fact that, uh, uh, that the government has so much discretionary power over these banks, they can get the banks to do things that are n not even necessarily legal, right? Uh, and so it was funny, you know, I probably was the least surprised person in America when the Twitter files came out yeah. <laughs> because I said basically, well, they've just borrowed the, they just borrowed the template for banking, <laughs> yeah. right? uh, which is we'll just nudge them. We'll just, you know, raise eyebrows. We'll just browbeat them and then they'll do what we uh, want just by, you know, we never have to unsheath the sword, really. They just know that we have the, uh, the threat here that we can use against them if they don't do what we want. So this, I mean, this, so this manual that, that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, produces, this goes to every bank uh, that it regulates, and you're supposed to read it and know it, and and they and they send this to you, and here's oh yeah, here's a new paragraph. Yeah, and they have hundreds of, of they have hundreds of bank examiners spread out around the country um, who are applying these things, uh, you know, they're, they're, a lot of them are actually embedded in the offices of the banks and basically monitor them on an ongoing basis, right? And so what they say is, if you don't follow what the examination manual says, we can um, look at imposing, you know, we can, we can give you a, uh, a, a non-clean bill of health, right? We could say that there are problems, compliance problems at this bank, which can then lead to all kind of regulatory hassles and, you know, that sort of thing. And why this is significant, what, you know, was 
um, a, 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 something called Operation Choke Point, um, which some of the listeners may have heard of. This was an initiative during the Obama administration where what they did using supervision, they didn't even find out about what was going on until a few years later after some litigation and discovery. But what, they, what the Obama administration did under Operation Choke Point was they identified some completely legal but politically unpopular businesses. Um, and they particularly targeted payday lending, uh, which they just didn't like payday lending, but it was legal. They knew they couldn't get rid of it. So what did they do? They used this very vague concept under, um, uh, under financial regulatory law called reputation risk. And they told the banks that it will present a reputation risk for you to provide bank accounts uh, and payment services to payday lenders, to gun dealers, to firearms dealers, to quote, you know, purveyors of quote racist materials, right? Um, and so, what's so striking about this, Richard, is we're talking about now shutting off access to bank accounts by industries that are protected by the First Amendment, by the Second <laughs> Amendment, right? You could yeah. never just directly do that if you were the uh, if you were the government target these things for this sort of uh, dis, uh, uh, treatment for debanking right yeah and so what it is you know it's a really uh, it's just an end run around those sorts of protections and you know we we you know those of us who are old enough to remember the Soviet Union will recall you know we used to always talk about yeah the Soviet Union had a great bill of rights right they protected religious liberty they protected freedom of the press right but everybody knew that you know you could have freedom of the press but if the government owned all the printing presses and paper you you couldn't uh, you couldn't print anything right and the same thing here if you you can print all the and try to sell all the you know, uh, materials you want that the Obama administration didn't like. But if you can't have a bank account where people can buy it, <laughs> yeah. right, uh, yeah. what are you going to, uh, uh, you know, what good is it? Well, you, you raise in the, you know, imagine Martin Luther King and, and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference trying to organize and, you know, and run his very successful civil rights campaign if they couldn't have access to a bank. And, you know, they they found access to a bank even despite what they were doing and the challenges they were up to. Is it beyond beyond the stretch when Sam Brownback, former governor of Kansas, uh, has his bank account closed by Chase Manhattan? I just heard an account of that uh, from David Bonson, who brought a successful shareholder proxy resolution challenging that, and that seems to have been the first real. Uh, successful strike against this uh, sort of business. You know, Todd, in, in, in summing up here, it sounds to me like the solutions are one fundamental rule of law values, but also administrative state ongoing reform that, that we've also been talking about for years. That's exactly right, which is the, 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 the administrative state, need the, the rule of law needs to be returned to the administrative state. Um, Dicey, Dicey's book that brought the rule of law back to life in the, uh, in, the, in the Western world was aimed at the rise of the administrative state, right? Um, and what we see now is the administrative state has become more and more slippery over time. It's more and more moved from rulemaking and enforcement to, these, to this regulatory dark matter um, that escapes the rule of law, that escapes the different, you know, and, uh, to, uh, and, and escapes sort of traditional oversight judges need to be more willing to step up and force restraints and force the rule of law on these administrative agencies uh, to try to keep them from sliding around 
the various uh, um, limits uh, uh, that uh, you know that the Constitution places on on these activities. These are government activities. They have the co- they have the effect of coercion uh, because of the way in which the government um, has so much power and so much discretion over businesses like banks um, to to get them to do their will with this regulation by raised eyebrow sort of thing, that there really needs to be a focus on restoring the rule of law here, judges doing it, um, and Congress stepping up and imposing real limits, uh, things like the fair access to financial services rule, I argue, for uh, for example, that I think are um, necessary, although they make me uncomfortable, I think they're necessary to restore some degree of the rule of law to the administrative state and finance. Todd, uh, thank you so much for talking about the rule of law and finance and for your wonderful paper for Heritage on the subject. We appreciate it. Thanks, Richard. Thank you.